Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration. I just and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. For me, abolition is a political vision of liberation with the goal of eliminating prisons, policing and surveillance altogether. It's an opportunity to imagine a future free of punishment, imprisonment and exile. On the one hand, we want to challenge the ubiquitous belief that there are throwaway people. And on the other hand, we want to bring together communities to develop revolutionary and transformative community-based responses to violence and harm. Abolition on Indigenous land. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. In the past month alone, there have been several painful reminders for Indigenous Australians that reinforce the belief they can't always trust the state to keep them safe. The deaths in custody of four Indigenous inmates were compounded by the findings of the coronial inquest into the 2018 death of Dungutty man Nathan Reynolds. Both serve as a reminder of Australia's cultural and legal shortcomings and the lack of trust between First Nations people and the criminal justice system. While Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been fighting for change for decades, grassroots campaigns for the abolition of systems of imprisonment, policing and surveillance are gaining increased support. These ideas were a central focus of this year's John Barry Lecture, hosted by the University of Melbourne. Held online last month, the event saw a group of Indigenous scholars and activists each consider the consequences of abolition. Joining the conversation were Indigenous teaching specialist at the University of Melbourne, Natalie Ironfield, activist and storyteller Tabitha Lean, Senior Fellow of Indigenous Programs at Melbourne Law School, Amanda Porter, Senior Researcher at the Jumbana Institute, Alison Whittaker, and PhD student, Latoya Aroha Rule. Let's listen in now, and we begin with Tabitha Lean as she details her personal experience with the criminal justice sector and why she now campaigns so passionately for the dismantling and abolition of the system. So let me start by telling you a little bit about me. I am number 177057. That is the six-digit number assigned to me by the state as my identity. It was given to me the day I was arrested and became a prisoner. It has stayed with me during my two-year stay in Adelaide's prison for deviant women, during my almost two years on home detention, and now that I'm on parole, or as I call it, open-air prison, it remains. It remains because I am one of this country's disposable people. I am a criminalised black woman in a colonial settler state founded violently with policies and practices seeking to erase, eradicate, breed out, extinguish, deny and invisibilise my kind. Every breath I draw is an act of radical resistance. But what I want to talk to you about today is twofold. I want to talk about abolition and I don't mean some kind of watered down version of abolition where reform creeps in as the compromise. Abolition of the real kind, the disestablishing, abolishing, defunding, tearing down prisons brick by brick and building up communities of care and models of radical reciprocity. And I want to talk about the science of criminology and the role they play in the enslaving and incarcerating of my people. Let me start by saying that I am an unashamed and unapologetic abolitionist. I will not rest until my people are freed from cages. For me, abolition is a political vision of liberation with the goal of eliminating prisons, policing and surveillance altogether. It's an opportunity to imagine a future free of punishment, imprisonment and exile. An abolition is both a demolition project and a building project. On the one hand, we want to dismantle policies, practices and institutions that make people disposable, you know, challenge the ubiquitous belief that there are throwaway people. And on the other hand, we want to bring together communities to develop revolutionary and transformative community-based responses to violence and harm, rather than relying on a system that reinforces and perpetuates violence. Fundamentally, I see abolition strategies as anti-capitalist, anti-racist, feminist, internationalist, environmentalist, intersectional, pro-cooperation, and a very necessary element of the decolonial struggle, and one that is rooted in collective care and values of mutual aid. 
and abolitionists about changing all of the conditions and special forces that feed and enable the prison industrial complex so that we don't have to rely on institutions in order for some of you to flourish. So let's talk about this moment we are hearing so much about. I think we are at a crucible moment in this country's history. We are seeing a powerful, sustained condemnation of racism and castle violence. There is an uprising. In my opinion, the call has never been louder to build a world in which the prison industrial complex is obsolete. But while this is a crucible moment, it's also a troubling moment. It's troubling because it is characterised by a renewed confidence amongst far-right groups, I guess made more confident and emboldened by the election and political terms of service of the likes of Donald Trump, Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison, and then nationalist rhetoric and conservative politics. But there is a similar renewal among anti-racists and anti-fascists, but it's also conditional, right? We saw women of this country take to the streets, and quite rightly so, to protest against the violence perpetrated against women in this country. But only the week before, our community bore witness to three more people killed in custody. And then at that time, blackfellas heard barely a whisper, let alone a roar from our white sisters. And it's not okay, but the reality is that our lives have never mattered in this colony unless given in service or sacrifice. So I don't say this to guilt like feminists, or maybe I do actually, you know, just to point out that this moment that we talk of is a moment that my people have been living for 233 years. So please know that we are not new to this, but we are absolutely true to it. Because the thing is that Aboriginal people don't have to try too hard to imagine abolition. We have, after all, been in fight, fighting the enslaving and incarcerating of our people since Cook stepped on their shores. The memory of a world without prisons and police rests in our DNA. We know it is possible. We have the answers because, after all, the answers are always found at the margins, a place we have dwelled for more than two centuries. But it seems harder for other people to imagine. When I give talks about abolition, the first thing that people ask me is, what will you do with all the rapists and the murderers? And I say that the people who have done my people the most harm are not and never will be in prison. And make no mistake, this is a justice system designed to serve only some. And the most startling resistance to abolition comes from parts of the school of criminology. Now, in the past, I've been very vocal about my opinions on the science of criminology, a science that has been used to justify the actions of the coloniser against my people by giving the coloniser's will a scientific basis. Colonial paradigms are central to criminology and the discipline, in my opinion, has existed in service to imperialism. I argue it's vital to interrogate criminology because it continues to define and legitimise social, legal and political parameters that criminalise my people. I'm critical of the way criminologists have traded off our stories, off our oppressions and off our experiences. They've made their careers off our black facts. And I think as blackfellas with lived prison experience, we must challenge the hegemony the school of criminology hold over legitimate knowledge about the Indigenous problem of so-called Aboriginal criminality, because it is this that forms part of the epistemic violence subjected onto our people. It is in the construction of the Aboriginal body as pathological, whereby we find our interaction with the criminal justice system. The coloniser uses the criminal injustice system to mediate conflict between our two races, us and them, and relegating us to deviance as a convenient way to legitimise large-scale land theft as well as constructing us as a menace to society that must be controlled. What we need from criminologists, if they are to persist to exist as a school, is to disrupt the hegemonic notion that black bodies are inherently deviant and carve out a space of possibility. And I need them to be abolitionists. Firm and true, I need them to be consistent because half measures are killing us. For me, abolition is critical to my people's survival. If people are not standing beside us to tear down this system, rather arguing at the edges, then they should get out of the way because no amount of yarning with me or talking at me or to me will have me to have any kind of interest in reforming a white supremacist system built with the express purpose of oppressing, controlling and facilitating the premature death of my people. I am an abolitionist and I will raise my lived experience voice in every space possible to make you see that this is possible. 
a world free of punishment and exile and torture and violence is not only possible, but the only way I think that I can secure the life and longevity of my people. I would like to pass over now to Alison, and I want to just quickly thank Alison for her ongoing labour in the inquest and deaths and custody and bringing us that information. Thank you. I'm going to take those walls down, Tabitha. Thank you so much for that. I'm a bit shaken, I suppose, by the power of your words, and I hope it's really disrupted the audience that came here kind of expecting that really softly, softly approach because these walls do have to come down and nobody, I think, has made the case stronger than you. I'm going to start with a story. It's the third day of the inquest and the regulars are shuffling in. Lawyers from the nurses' union, corrective services or police or individual officers, and they've all set their place at two rows of bar tables. Before the family enters, there's a bit of nudging and chuckling and jokes about the weekend and whiskey and whether you can bill it to your clients. And they're there to pour over an Aboriginal man who died in custody some years ago now, whose photo sits just two metres away from them. It's these lawyers' jobs, as his mother sits in the sun outside to calm her nerves, to tell the court that her son was destined to die and to resist recommendations being issued to state institutions who we know are responsible. It's the inquest's job, the coroner reminds everybody on the first day, to find the cause and the manner of death and not to blame. Meanwhile, the families who lost their son, essentially the only people not being paid to be there and those for whom this inquest means the most, are looking for accountability. And often they are looking for changes that would, had they been implemented before they died, prevent the death of the person they loved. These are recommendations that are hard fought, but even when they are won, they don't bind state parties. In most jurisdictions, there's no legislated obligation to respond to, let alone follow, a recommendation that comes from this gruelling and violent process. When you hear about the horrors of prison and police against First Nations people, it's sometimes from inquests into deaths in custody or similar commissions of inquiry, like those into the abuse of young people at Dondale. And these are commissions of inquiry tasked with investigating otherwise opaque and violent and isolated institutions that hold total control over people's lives, loves and deaths. And for those who are interested in the abolition of these institutions, as I think you should be, inquests can be tools, vexed tools. They are by their nature public health, criminological and policy inquiry bodies driven to think about bodies and risk and justification of medicine and improvement, not about racism, violence and carceralism, which we know are the problem. And they hear mostly from, and they get their evidence from, state parties who have a stake in minimising racism, violence and carceralism. And so what often happens is that inquests issue recommendations that look very different to the story a family tells and the case strategy that they advance. To the coroner's courts and their regulars before them, these are mundane matters. And First Nations families disrupt that narrative. They pull our attention to the violence that happened to their families, not just by the malevolence and malfunction of protocols and individuals and policies, but by the very design of prisons as colonial tools themselves. The recommendations, though, that they seek and that they get very rarely hold that. So if we see recommendations as tools, what are they tools for? Are they benefiting communities and families? Or are we risking just driving the optimization of the prison? Very few inquests into First Nations deaths in custody on this continent have been brought to bear on the question of custody and incarceration itself, the core of the problem. In New South Wales, for instance, pushes by families to have courts consider the criminalisation of remote and rural mob for driving offences have been roundly rejected, with one coroner saying that not criminalising Aboriginal people with chronic health conditions won't stop them from dying, that, in effect, we are destined to die without the action of prisons, and so what they do is benevolent to us. And that's a logic 
that even anybody with the most cursory view of colonial history on this continent would be familiar with. The families contest this at inquests, specifically on this issue of decriminalisation repeatedly. In some cases, prison interrupted their loved one's access to life or death critical care and having withdrawn it, then stole their families from them, took them hours away where they died alone. Incarceration wasn't peripheral to their death. It was at the centre of their death, the centre of their experience of this colonial force. But also the coroner's court is centre to that colonial experience. Even the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, nearly 30 years ago now, recognises its principal finding that Aboriginal people die at the rates in custody that we do precisely because of the colonial practice of putting us in prisons. So why is the question of custody so rarely on the table for a critical review if it is a path to suffering and death for mob, even when it is not fatal? In Victoria, the family of Ani Tanya Day successfully used the coroner's court to push for the decriminalisation of public drunkenness, recommended by the Royal Commission almost 30 years ago. And Latoya, who is going to speak next, has done similarly to question the practice of spithoods and the use of spithoods in the death of their brother, Wayne Fellow Morrison. And these campaigns led on behalf of families can be said to have abolitionist goals through what is called non-reformist reforms. And they are reforms to systems that denormalize and limit rather than calibrate and expand the reach of police and prisons. And these are reforms that are about getting people out safe and home. They are taking out bricks from the wall that Tabitha was talking about. However, it is becoming more common for inquests to offer and abide by reforms that seem like progress to the casual observer who doesn't know much about abolition. They're reforms that tinker at the edges of logic and procedures of prison and policing. They're reforms like improving intake procedures that capture drug use to monitor substances used inside prisons, which have disciplinary and regulatory consequences for people inside. Or the routine administration of uses of force against people inside, requiring things like forms, reviews or documentation in a way that normalises the restraint of dignity, health, and very often life of mob inside. These are reforms that keep people inside, expand the reach of police and prisons, and regularise and normalise the use of prisons against us. Inquests tell stories and have ways of thinking and doing that are rarely within family control, and that routinely exclude families from a vision of justice through decarceration and abolition. They are not our tools. They do not serve First Nations and they should be handled carefully and with clear intent. But we still use them because, as Amy Maguire has said just recently, we're doing the work through them to make violence visible. And as Michaela Reynolds said just last week, as her brother Nathan's findings were handed down, not one more single person has to die before their time. Change is possible. And I say that change is abolition. Someone who has strategized through and analyzed brilliantly around this structural agony for their brother Wayne Fellow Morrison and for so many other people with grace and generosity and expertise is the next speaker, Latoya, who I'm going to hand you over to them now. Thank you so much, Alison and Tabitha and Amanda as well, and Nat and all the Aboriginal people tuning in for your continual support of my family and I, and just giving us and me a space at the moment. I'm really gobsmacked sitting here, just listening to Alison and Tabitha so far, particularly Tabitha's thoughts around the prison and experiences and lived experience around the prison. Back to Tabitha's thoughts that, you know, I'm thinking about, I've never been inside a prison as a criminalised person with convictions or remandi against my name. However, I had to walk through the place where the final moments of Wayne's consciousness rest, which is in the cell where he was kept and where he was hooded with a spit hood and where his ankles and wrists were tied and where he was placed face down into a transport van. I've sat in that transport van where he laid 
and I've walked through the process towards him being pulled out. And all I can remember is the smell of the bleach and that it smelled like a, a meatworks. And it's something that doesn't leave you. So I think with that image, it's important just to know and to consider the people who died in those places with those smells, with those feelings, with those people around them who were so unsafe, those corrections officers and those police, and how important it is, like I wrote this week, to consider people like Tabitha who survived those spaces and to consider the people who have died with those memories as their last. And the fact that Tabitha continues to speak to those memories that will never leave her. Again, creating space for us to talk is so critical, particularly after the March for Justice. I looked at what was occurring and I analysed what was occurring, like a lot of black people, let alone black women and non-binary people like myself did. And I thought about firstly what trans women and what non-binary people, how they were being situated in the conversations. I thought that it was a voice that was largely being silenced, particularly the Aboriginal trans people in that space. But most of all, what really irked me, and, you know, I'm not anti-women. I think Indigenous people at our hearts are pro-people because we're pro-country and we know that there's no separation between us. And so in that decolonising way, I really thought, why is it that before they even march for this March for Justice, they get a call from the Prime Minister to meet with them? When just this month, our families were denied that meeting. Aboriginal elders, many women, were denied that meeting. After how long have families since colonisation been working against Aboriginal deaths in custody from multiple colonial policing <laughs> processes? And yet, before this march even starts, they get a welcome into white space. Whereas for us to work inside of white space is so dangerous that even asking to access that space and asking to walk into those places freely after we know what happens against our bodies is such a defying moment to then be denied and have that critical moment not acknowledged. Yeah, I looked at that and I just thought that it was such an injustice on its own. As part of our group, alongside National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, since last year we've come together, more than 15 families, to try to motivate you know, the community, motivate ourselves, support ourselves to overcome a lot of the grief and trauma and continually process collectively into something along the ways of abolition, I would say. And that's abolition of the system, abolition of the structures that continually criminalise us, also as protesters, let alone our family members. So in that defying space, we're standing up and we've been standing up for quite a while now and we're strategizing towards getting justice ourselves because as Alison says the system doesn't provide us anything and it's hard to say that so openly when that's all you've got when that's all you're looking forward to and I know my mother you know I love my mother and I, I know that she wouldn't mind me saying this but somebody can check with her <laughs> it's something that I've realized a lot of our parents and older people look towards, and a lot of the mothers who I've spoken to so far really look towards as a space that, like, that, that, that's their hope, that there's something to hold on to. So like Alison was saying, while they become very obsolete, they're actually so critical as well within our journey through healing and, and grief and loss. And I think one thing that breaks my heart the most is that going through that process with my mum, you know, continually kind of you go through a, a system where you have to continually tell your family members that nothing's going to come out of it don't get your hopes up you know we're not looking for anything within this system but when that's all you've got again it's very hard to do so not only are we working as organizers with the grief and loss of our own families and carrying that we're also educating people, our own families and our communities on the coronial process and our own thoughts around that process about navigating it. 
And that work is so tiring. So when we're not met after doing this education of ourselves, of our communities, of our families, and we're not met, our humanity is not seen and not visibilized in this space, in Parliament, just for a really short time. I don't think people understand how hurtful that is. And it just feels so disheartening. And it, yeah, it's, I just think that this is important to see right now because I think that it's not what people usually see around the system. And that brings me to very quickly <laughs> the criminalizing effect of protesting and how the police for the March for Justice were standing behind a corner on their phones when women on Monday were out on the streets and how during the Black Lives Matter protests, we had heavy police presence. We had people pepper sprayed here in New South Wales. We had Aboriginal people so fearful of going and showing up in a public space because they know that this is how we get, how we're represented to authorities. And I know we're going to get to the questions in a minute, but I think one most important thing for me in my interaction with criminology is that so many criminologists are actually the teachers of the police. They're the teachers of the lawyers. They're, these are the young people that go in their first year of university and sit in your classes, and yet they're coming out and we're expected to stand alongside them. And I just think that it's such a critical moment for all of us to have this conversation around how criminology itself is actually perpetrating violence through the system of Aboriginal deaths in custody. And for that school of thought and that ideology to take accountability for this grief. You've just heard from PhD student Latoya Aroha Rule. She was speaking as part of the annual John Barry Memorial Lecture hosted by the University of Melbourne. You've also been listening to activist and storyteller Tabitha Lean and senior researcher at the Jumbana Institute, Alison Whitaker. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing. You know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berend. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight, we're bringing you a focused discussion around growing calls for the abolition of systems of imprisonment, policing and surveillance. We pick up the conversation with criminologist and senior fellow of Indigenous programs at Melbourne Law School, Amanda Porter. In particular, I wanted to speak tonight to a deep paradox which I see in Australian criminology. And that is that it has always struck me as deeply contradictory that you can have a discipline like criminology a discipline that hinges on seeing crime as a social construct and building empirical understandings and ideas about the most appropriate response and way of regulating social harms, which at the same time has such significant blind spots when it comes to the most egregious harms this country has ever witnessed, land theft, state-sanctioned violence, genocide and ecocide. And I think these paradoxes play out with even more force in Australia when you consider history here in terms of Australia as a penal colony where the first civilian police force was made up of quite literally 11 of the best behaved convicts and where the development of policing and the extension of the criminal jurisdiction was founded and is founded on crimes of genocide and frontier wars past and present. And these blind sites play out in terms of the conceptual framings, the methodologies of criminology, and as well as criminology's claims to knowledge and ultimately truth. And I just wanted to tease out this paradox um, by making three or four brief points. The first point I wanted to make relates to Aboriginal sovereignty and Australian criminology's inability to grasp with the fact of Aboriginal sovereignty and with the fact of legal pluralism here. So Australia, of course, remains one of the few settler nations not to have a treaty or a formalised agreement between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the state. And in terms of Aboriginal sovereignty, Aboriginal sovereignty obviously predates settler sovereignty and Aboriginal law is still practised and Aboriginal responsibilities to country are very much ongoing. Whereas in terms of settler claims to sovereignty, well, 
the legal basis on which the settler legal system asserts its sovereignty, the doctrine of terra nullius, has been described by the High Court as a legal fiction. So to quote Professor Mick Dodson, the foundations of the sovereignty of the Australian state remains a mystery and at the very least a little legally shaky, end quote. So that's my first point, was that I'm not satisfied that this fact is adequately understood by Australian criminologists, nor by the Australian lay public. And this leads me to the second point which I wanted to make tonight, and that's about Australian criminology's apparent disregard or disinterest in what Professor Lester Rigney, Professor Morton Robinson and Professor Bond and others have termed Aboriginal intellectual sovereignty. So we see this play out also in terms of curricula, citation practices and competitive grants. I think it's fair to say that Australian criminologists and humanitarian scholars would be more familiar with Antonio Gramsci's prison notebooks than they would be with the collective outputs of Wiradjuri philosopher Kevin Gilbert, who himself produced intellectual and creative works in Long Bay Prison. And equally, I think it's fair to say that we see criminologists engage more with the work of Agamben, Homi Baba and Edward Sayed than they would with the work of you know, Martin Nakata's cultural interface theory or Professor Marcia Langton's empirical work on night patrols, all of which have a lot to offer criminological research and teaching. And the third point I wanted to make is that this is a criticism that I'm making against all criminology, not just positivist or administrative criminology, some of the worst elements that have already been discussed on the panel, but also feminist criminology, southern criminology and so-called post-colonial criminology. So it's easy to make this argument with respect to administrative criminology with its overwhelming focus on state carceral policy and perspectives. It's also an obvious criticism in relation to what we've seen in terms of the proliferation of police partnership research, which almost exclusively focuses on the perspectives from within the police while leaving out the perspectives of policed communities. But we also see this psychological terra nullius, to use a term coined by Professor Megan Davis, um, which she uses that with respect to Australian public institutions, but we see this psychological terra nullius with respect to even the most critical schools of criminology. For example, I can't write book reviews at the rate at which non-Indigenous professors are writing books about decolonising criminology or offering their ways of imagining justice in a supposedly quote-unquote post-colonial world. But more generally, whether it's decolonising, democratising or southernising criminology, I can't help but find metaphors like these rather clunky and contradictory, but perhaps more importantly, ultimately unhelpful in that the language is just so far removed from the lived histories and experiences and ongoing battles of Indigenous families uh, and communities who are fighting this on the ground. And for me personally, one of the most troubling trends has been the rise of carceral feminism and Australian criminology's complicity in this rise. In particular, I'm really concerned about current debates in Australia about the criminalisation of coercive control and the ways in which Australian criminological research is currently being used as evidence or authority to prop up arguments that advocates are using to favour the expansion of police powers, the expansion of police resources and the expansion of policing and prison industries. And it's interesting to me that often it's these solutions that are the most punitive, which are also the ones that are afforded the biggest platform by the Australian mainstream media, and that these solutions that are proposed are often based on the most flimsiest of evidence. This is, of course, something not new, but the inability for Australian feminism to be intersectional goes back as long as first contact, but has been, you know, waged out in respect to the Bell Huggins debates and so on. But to conclude... I just wanted to bring it back to the point I was making at the outset about Aboriginal families who are leading this fight on the ground and to say that Australian criminology would do well to spend less time pontificating on fashionable or trendy theories and more time reading Australian history and showing up and supporting families and their causes at the front line. Thank you so much. So I wanted to ask you all to comment on and I guess speak back to one another about Um, what you see as key abolitionist opportunities in the current moment for our mob. Tabitha, I've just seen you've taken your view off. (laughs) I think for me the key to this moment is people standing beside us. 
I think the danger that I see in abolition becoming this kind of mainstream concept, because while I'm happy for abolition to be a mainstream idea, I want it to be a household idea, I want it to be the political will of the people. But the issue for me is the potential for abolition just to become another fad, a hashtag, a black screen on an Instagram square, a byline or a chant at a rally. And I think I want people in this moment to know that abolition has deep roots in more than two centuries of organising by our people. We are experts in this in this country and criminologists would do well to listen to our people. They would do well to listen to people with lived experience and people with families who have been killed in custody. I think that there is a danger in the mainstreaming of abolition in terms of the invisibilising of lived experience voices. We see experts rise up in this space who have never seen the inside of a police cell or a prison cell, who've never been arrested or suffered at the hands of the state. Now, you don't have to be in prison to be an abolitionist, but if you haven't been in a prison cell or in a cage in so-called youth detention, your place in the movement is to elevate the voices of those with lived experience, to listen and organise from the sides and share your platform. Because the thing is, we are all experts in our own oppression and if this is not your oppression and you do not know it intimately, then you're not the expert. So while I think we're in a moment, I think what we need from the rest of the world and the rest of this country and criminologists in particular is to stand up and listen and stand beside us and let us speak in these moments. Thank you, Tamitha. I might hand over to you, Latoya. Abolition opportunities. I think it offers a decolonial future and I've been thinking about this a lot more in terms of things like reparations as well and how Amanda just posted on Twitter, $649,500 is what the New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller gets every single year. You know, what kind of lives could we save with that amount of money? if there wasn't a criminalising element to Aboriginality in the first instance. So I think, yeah, an abolitionist future really should be decolonial. I don't think it's enough for people to consider themselves abolitionists but not consider themselves upon Indigenous land and the benefits that they receive from that land, including their jobs, like you criminologists and like me now, you know, inside of a university space as well. We have to be considering how we interact with systems as part of an abolitionist agenda. So I think it's a deepening to know ourselves a bit more and also colonialism, which largely actually gets left out of abolitionist discussions, believe it or not, unless we're doing this with other Indigenous people and scholars. Alison, do you know? I kind of wanted to, like, thinking about this moment, it doesn't seem like very present tense to be talking about 2020 but I've been thinking about this time last year I myself had to isolate having just coming back from overseas and there was this regenerating discussion around mutual aid and building community resources and what that opened up for so many people was what Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about as abolition not being just about demolishing these systems but actually about rebuilding old systems that were in place that we've relied upon for so long on this continent for countless millennia and actually thinking about how we build the social networks that eradicate people's reliance on or people's knee-jerk reaction to do things like call police that are anti-abolitionist in their nature and to think about ways that we can do that through service to one another And at the time, it seemed like it would really gather momentum and pick up. But as life is kind of urged towards this new normalcy, I suppose, that we're all kind of trying to reach towards, it's possible that those networks can begin to crumble again. I think an opportunity for abolitionists to actually be really intentional and deliberate around organising those networks so we can begin to build in the place what the criminal justice system, criminal punishment system takes away from us as communities and as people. I just want to reiterate Tavis's point actually about how abolitionist praxis is happening here at present. It's been happening for a long time. If you look at the organising that families are doing and the support networks that they're currently providing, as well as decarceral strategies run by Sisters Inside and JIRA and other Aboriginal organisations. And as Latoya said, imagine this moment 
when you consider that actually, you know, in terms of crime rates across the country, we've seen crime rates declining across nearly all categories. Burglary, contact crime, assault, sexual assault, robbery, that's according to the official statistics. However, we've seen record policing and prison budgets, you know, massive 650k salaries for people to come up with dunderhead ideas and the construction of historic high records for private prison partnerships, as we've seen in the Clarence Correctional Centre mega prison, which is being built illegally on Yeagul, Gumbangi and Bundjalung country. And the announcement of a new prison in New South Wales, and, and that, that's part of a trend we're seeing around. And this doesn't make sense. We need to be uh, having discussions around the defunding and divestment from carceral industries and think about where is a more logical place where this money can be allocated to support better support families and organisations who are doing this community safety and community building work on the ground. And then I just sort of just wanted to piggyback on Alison's great idea there about just reflecting on the pandemic and the lockdown and the fact that we're all here on on the Zoom. And there's been scientific reports that have has talked about how pandemics will be more frequent given the unsustainable relationship between humans and the environment. And I think now there's this bittersweet moment of opportunities, but as people said, a great opportunity to rethink our connection to the country that we're on and how to better and more sustainably care for country. There's this moment of opportunity And I think Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous activism and Indigenous scholarship has a lot to offer at this critical juncture. Thank you so much. It would be interesting to hear in terms of anything else you think we need to be kind of wary of in relation relation to the mainstreaming of abolitionist politics and maybe thinking about that in relation to institutions too, so whether that be the state but also the university. I have been thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and how that came to be and how we've exercised power, I think, and taken back power through that movement. But very similarly, there's a difference, I believe, between the Black Lives Matter movement and abolitionist movement. And I think this is a discussion that we need to have outside of this discussion in communities with non-Indigenous people because a lot of what has happened is the black square on Instagram and then the right back to work as, as necessary. And again, just to refer to the March for Justice, when I wrote that article about how I might be expected to stand on a front line with a police officer who's a woman who next week I might be seeing give evidence in my brother's coronial inquest about why his death was purposeful, why his death was timely, why his death was expected and why Aboriginal people are still deemed to die out, which is how Aboriginal people who die in prisons and police cells and other custodial environments are being seen. And so the movement has just become a really cool exercising of clout (laughs) in many ways. But something I always remember as well, funnily enough, which brings me back actually to two people, men. One is Malcolm X when he said that the civil rights movement became a parade at the end of it and how people were parading rather than marching and protesting. And I think we have to, and we get to redefine what that looks like ourselves as well. But another one is just that the revolution will not be televised. And I really take that to heart, despite technology. I really consider the people who are abolitionists and leading Black Lives Matter who don't have access, for instance, those who are doing the work in communities every single day without it being televised, those mums and dads raising their kids to be aware with critical consciousness and, you know, the people who are kind of doing things as part of their daily life. I think that abolition has to affect us on the daily, day-to-day movements and actions that we're taking and that we're walking out. And I definitely see that through multiple examples, not only in my family's inquest and through the support of how it's ebbed and flowed around popular movements and popular times of the year, for instance. But also on the other side of that, I think it has been very positive and has offered us opportunities as teachers as well 
to see how people have started reconsidering their place in society and their place alongside Indigenous people. But yeah, I've definitely witnessed that as well. It's become really cool, but it's not cool day to day and it's not cool to live it either. Thank you so much, Latoya. One of the other things I was just going to say is that the thing about abolition becoming a mainstream concept is also handy because, quite frankly, and I say this to the colonisers in the audience, this is your system. Like the labour to abolish this system should not rest with me. This is not my system. It's your system. So I would actually like to see abolition become a day-to-day thing for people and that's about abolition in our everyday lives. It's about abolishing the cop in our head. (laughs) It's about abolishing the cops in our schools and I mean that even by teachers who use carceral logic to manage our children in schools. I'd like to see abolition mainstreamed in that respect and I'd like the colonisers to pick up on the labour because it always falls to us black followers. And while I think we hold the answers and I'm happy to share, you know, some of those answers along the way, the labour should not be resting with us because it's taking a toll on our bodies. We die before you and we spend our lives fighting this system that is your system. I mean, justice is meted out in your name. This system is designed to keep people like you safe from people like me. So it's your responsibility to tear this system down. So that would be the benefit I would see of mainstreaming abolition. Thank you so much, Tabitha. I guess I'd really love for you all to comment on how you understand Um, and think about the relationship between criminology and abolitionist imaginary, thinking about and speaking to how the discipline of criminology can work to constrain this imaginary, but also about if there's any possibility for an abolitionist practice within this discipline. Amanda, maybe I'll pass on to you. Yeah, I haven't figured it out myself, Natalie. I guess for me, it's not an abolitionist imaginary, though. Like, I think this a lived praxis that people are doing every day outside of the university, I should say. Like, can it happen inside the university? I'm not sure, actually. Like, I mean, on the one hand, I think there's potential and I want to believe that there's other ways of regulating and social harms that don't involve criminalising and building the state carceral apparatus and, and expanding police powers and so on. And, you know, I do find it interesting to think that only two centuries ago in England, for example, the idea of the police was really unpopular and considered anti-libertarian and, and un-British. And I just don't know what's happened. And people would protest the idea of the police. I f- find that fascinating. But I also wonder what on earth happened, you know. But I think about criminologists like Cohen and Niels Christie, who said that if we're opening new criminology centres, then we're not doing our job right. You know, <laughs> that's not the point. And I think that criminology has a responsibility to take this up. But my fear is just knowing the logics that universities operate under and the big money that's in competitive grants for fashionable topics like gender-based violence and carceral feminism, I worry. Thank you. Tabitha? I think my point about criminology is really simple. Unless a criminologist is working to make their job obsolete, They are enablers of the colonial system. They are entirely complicit. And I think it troubles me that some criminologists feel okay to have this job for the rest of their lives because it means that they will have a job theorising about the pain that people go through. So the pain and the scars of incarceration rest deeply in my body and in my soul and in my spirit. And the thought that people want to make the careers of the facts of ensuring that that continues or that it morphs into something else by cutting the edges of it actually horrifies me. Yeah, I would echo that. I don't see the separation between that process, Tabitha, and the coronial inquest process either. I don't know if many people know, and I have been a bit hesitant to tell people or to write about this just yet, but maybe I should. Within the coronial system, there are people who have been making their life's work off of Aboriginal people dying in custody. And it does feel sickening to think then in the universities that's exactly the same in so many ways. People are making their livings off the fact that we die and that they know that we die and that's also an expectation that their income next year will be because they expect us to die as well and they can use our deaths. It's a bit disgusting. 
But one thing I did think that's an opportunity, an abolitionist opportunity for the School of Thought of Criminology, and you've probably heard it at a lot of conferences, but this idea of legalising survival as a person as a social work background, I think that we can consider a revolution with inside the thought around the constraints of criminology and rather looking at from a colonial perspective, the culture of the criminal, we could look at how we're charged with survival, how we actually carry out survival against the systems. This work that we are doing every single day, how is that being theorised? And not to speak myself up, but that's something I'm doing in my PhD. I know that's something other people are doing throughout their research who are Aboriginal and who also have a passion for this area. We're looking into the resilience, the strength, the resistance of the community to actually flip the switch and say, hey, like we are powerful, we carry power and, and this needs to be recognised rather than the criminal elements. And I don't think that the School of Thought of Criminology has to stay by Lombroso's considerations that seem to have just carried through to 2021. I don't think I look like a criminal anymore, but the police still seem that we do. So, you know, it's time to, I think, revolutionise criminology as an abolitionist perspective. We can do it. (laughs) Alison, is there anything you wanted to add? No, I just really want to echo Latoya's call to actually stretch the imaginary of what we think is possible so much further and to actually feel the responsibility that that brings upon us. I mean, there's a tendency in criminology to shave the sides of things and to smooth out concepts that are actually required to be jagged and confrontational and to actually depict the violence of these systems and to turn them into kind of like measurable, quantifiable, positivist frameworks. And we've seen kind of the danger of that with justice reinvestment, where it's actually become this kind of new metaphor for the criminalization and the improvement, quote unquote, of you know young Aboriginal people and is actually exposing them to police in preventative and surveilling ways. And so that's something that criminology has directly contributed to and that's something that should concern us given the roots of the justice reinvestment concept, which probably seems to many people quite similar to defund the police. And so I think criminology's role is about listening to people, working towards kind of being obsolete, supporting that imaginary and not cutting it off at the knees, not limiting its vision of the future and of the possible because it's coming and criminology can be part of it or they can hinder it. That's senior researcher at the Jambana Institute, Alison Whitaker. She was speaking as part of this year's John Barry Memorial Lecture hosted by the University of Melbourne. You've also heard from activist and storyteller Tabitha Lean, Senior Fellow of Indigenous Programs at Melbourne Law School, Amanda Porter, and PhD student Latoya Aroha Rule. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Thank you.